0: Welcome to Human Factors Cast, your weekly podcast for all things Human Factors, Psychology, and Design.
1: Hey, it is episode 155. Blake, we've done 155 of these. Uh, Today is uh, February 27th, 2020, uh, and this is Human Factors Cast. Uh, I'm your host, Nick Rome. I'm joined today, like I said, by Mr. Blake Arnsdorf. They're from across
2: the interwebs. What's up, everybody? How are you doing across the internet today? Hey, there he is. Hey, uh, I'm good, Blake. How are you? I'm so good. So happy to be here for another episode of Human Factors I'm Cast. I'm thrilled
1: <laughs> to be here. I am so looking forward to this episode. We got some great news stories to cover this week. We have a woman <laughs> playing violin <laughs> during brain surgery to save her mus- musical skills. Um, and there's a
2: video of that for everybody who's you- just starting off. Pause the show now, watch it, and listen to us talk about it. Go check
1: out the video. The link is in the show notes. Uh, We have this study uh, from Curtin University that's finding that there's fears about personal data uh, for people using mobile health apps. We're going to be talking... uh, I think we might take a deep dive on this. I don't know. We'll we'll see. But there's uh, this whole artificial intelligence deception discussion that we need to get our fingers all over. And the Apple Watch will largely not detect AFibs uh, at a heart rate greater than 120 beats per minute, according to Uh the study. So... Uh, We have all that coming up, but first, uh, I want to let all of you know that next week marks the beginning of our Patreon refresh. Now, we've been hinting at this for a while. I think we're finally ready to discuss. Blake and I, over the last couple months, have kind of taken a step back and said, okay, look, this infinite thing is not really working for us. It's a a huge time commitment for us, and as much as we'd love to sit and bullshit for another hour every week— it's just not feasible with our schedules, and and uh, you know, but we still want to provide something valuable to the people who choose to support this show. And so, what we're doing is we're launching a new podcast. Go go figure! This is like what, our fourth podcast, I think, that we've How ever podcast. Can you make in <laughs> with, under one umbrella? Uh, but anyway, so so we're launching this new podcast, and I think I think a lot of you will really enjoy this. So this is called Human Factors Minute. And it is exactly what it sounds like. It is a it is a minute of just human factors goodness. Now, uh, I understand that, you know, there's, there's a lot of people out there like, what does that mean, right? So this is something that's highly produced. This is, we've searched all over. We've dug out our textbooks. We brought out the history lessons. Uh, we have gone far and wide to bring you uh, content that is succinct, easily digestible, and highly produced, highly researched. Uh, and it's a less time, it's it's less of a time commitment for basically everyone involved. I mean, Blake and I, we've been putting these together for the last uh, couple months, and we have a whole year's worth of content ready for you. It's all uploaded to Patreon now uh, or should be by the time this episode goes live. And so we literally are sitting back and watching these things deploy every week. These are a weekly show, uh, and so they're highly produced, highly researched. Uh, less of a time commitment for you and us um you know it's it's still work on our part but for you it's only a minute of your
2: time uh and it's still something that i think adds value um and it's way more consistent than we were with you know human factors infinite because it would be like there was times we couldn't spend an hour there were times but then there would be large gaps in between because of his and i's schedule so this is not going to go anywhere it'll always be there waiting for you when you're ready for a minute of human factors
1: yeah so uh you know what? You can and you can digest this any way you like. You can bank them all and listen to them all in one go for an hour. You know, at the end of the year, or you can, uh, you can listen to them week by week and chunk it them that way. So, uh, we are very excited about this and and hope that you are all too. Um, you know, if if you are interested in this, it, it only takes a buck to get in on on the Patreon level. Uh, for um, the Slack, we have a we have a Patreon only slack uh channel for our patrons uh that gets you in at the dollar level and at the five dollar level is where you get human factors uh minute and um you know that's that's as a thank you for helping us uh, keep the show afloat
2: and uh
1: yeah I'm, I'm really excited about it blake you're really excited about it
2: absolutely man and it's kind of nuts that we're even able to produce this kind of content so we're really excited to hear feedback from you guys about it um because it's it's definitely a labor of love but very enjoyable to do
1: yeah and again it comes back to that we want to produce you know we want to produce content that's useful for you and and uh, we feel like this is the best way to go so if that's something you're interested in um you know uh we we do have that sample on the uh patreon subs um slack channel so go check that out there and then uh if that's something you're you're interested in you know you c- can you can check it out and jump in at any time yeah there you go um okay blake uh aside from that we have this uh cal state uh university long beach that uh their human factors conference is coming up uh i'm a keynote you know what i'm gonna try to get audio from that and drop it as a patreon bonus um and there and you we'll go see. that'd be sick um, or maybe maybe just a regular uh, coverage episode because we haven't we haven't done coverage of a conference in a while and I don't I don't know if we're gonna have coverage of the healthcare symposium this year. Um, gotcha. Yeah. yeah. I wonder so if
2: we if uh, if you or I or somebody could interview some of the students that have put on the conference this year at Cal State Long Beach, like the president or somebody drop that on the podcast as well
1: yeah let's look into that and uh we'll, we'll try to get you content either way i know it's been a while since we've actually covered a conference uh both blake and i were out last year during hfes so there's kind of been a drought um and uh again don't know if we're getting healthcare symposium covered this year or not we're still looking into it but uh you know we will get you something all right uh blake what's going on in your world though i got you know it's it's been a it's been a week yeah it has been a week yeah it's been a human so- factors minute
2: been a human factor. It's been, I don't know how many minutes are in a week, but it's been that many minutes uh, since we're we're we've it. human factors. Um, Man, I just, so I'm kind of inspired by a couple of things this week and I wanted to share them on the podcast. 10,080.
1: 10,080 yeah. minutes in a week, by the way.
2: I, I knew you were going to have <laughs> the numbers for me. <laughs> but anyway, so one thing that I've started doing recently is I'm doing a little bit more of development in my day-to-day job. Um, so that means not just doing front end development, which I'm a little more familiar with, have a much more experience in doing, but I'm actually doing some of like full stack JavaScript development. And I don't know anything at all about backend hardly, like how to write APIs, what even what fetch and grab means, any of that stuff. Um, so it's definitely out of the wheelhouse of net, my normal day to day. So I like on all things. Sought to the internet for how I was going to learn some of this stuff. And what I've found is I've started using a program through Treehouse or Team Treehouse doing their full stack JavaScript development program. But how awesome their Slack has been for a learning environment for somebody who doesn't really know, who's not like a master of JavaScript, doesn't know back end very well how APIs work. Or any of that kind of stuff, and it's just a been an expiring kind of thing to be a part of, where you do code reviews or you talk to people about you know their experience in the field or you know how to solve problems together. Is like either people that are really experienced, people are their same level, and it was something that I wanted to throw out to the people that are in our Slack now, or if you're listening to this podcast for the first time and you join our Slack soon, um, what we can do, what Nick and I can do to like bring more kind of awesome content to you through Slack or how we can be more helpful to you. Cause it's been a great learning experience for me connecting with people across the internet who, we're just, you know, basically chatting online from time to time, going over pro- each other's products and that kind of stuff. And I wanted to see what we can do for our community to kind of bring that same feel to our own Slack. Because I know we have a lot of active members, but I want to kind of, you know, up that engagement and see what we can do more for the Human Factors community as a whole. What we can bring in from like the UX design side, how I can be of more use to anybody in there. So if any of our Slack members have suggestions for that kind of stuff, I'm definitely open to them. Yeah, I'm I'm open to that too. I,
1: I, I the reason we created this environment um, for for our listeners was a as a way to kind of interact with other people in the community, and I know that's kind of HFES's goal with the member forum as well. Uh, and it's all about trying to connect with others in the community and just to kind of see um, foster an environment where you can ask questions without feeling. Um, you know scared to ask questions because you're in good company and I I I really do think that's an important that's a that's a super important um uh environment to be in um so uh, yeah like if you guys have any suggestions please let us know uh we would love 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 to take you up
2: on some of those uh opportunities for us to grow our own personal slack um and to also just throw this out there for a lot of people, I don't know that everybody knows like what I do in a distance to the normal like human factors and design job that I have. Um, I work with a company called Design Lab where I both mentor people in transitioning like from whatever career they're in now into a user experience, research, or design job. And part of that is re- reviewing resumes, reviewing portfolios, providing feedback on those things to kind of help you get your foot through the door in different companies or give you strategies for how do you put a case study together, how do you present yourself on the Internet in a way that looks professional. So if that's something anybody's interested in, you can always reach out to me on Slack for that kind of stuff. Um, I'm happy to review resumes, look at your portfolios, give you feedback, any of that kind of stuff. If, that, if you're like just hitting the job market and you're, you're a new student, that's something I'm well-versed in and can definitely help you out with. So in terms of professional development, that's, that's a great thing you can reach out to us for. Um, but, yeah, like we were both saying, anything that can kind of – keep this community growing because i just i just wanted to be a place where people can come not feel like they're going to be looked down upon because they don't know the answer to a question or they don't know a lot about human factors they don't know a lot about hci or like a method that is kind of like new and new and used or like how to do usability test, whatever it is uh it's just like a we want to foster a learning environment for everybody who ends up th- walking through our slack door if you will our slack door slack uh, door yeah
1: i love it um yeah, so that's what's been going on with you, Blake. Uh, hang on, I thought I saw something else in the notes, but maybe not. Um, oh, Pro yeah. Tools? yeah. So, do you want to talk I about will, that?
2: Yeah, I'll throw one more thing out there, and I'm gonna—I'm not gonna say the name of the company because I do love the product. Um, but I oh, had I an experience said. today was- where I was using, uh, like a—I'm—I'm I'm into kind of music production, that kind of stuff. So I was using a tool, found it really, really difficult to get started with, just from. How to download it, how to set it up, how to put plugins to it, and then just the clunkiness of the interface. And it reminded me back to why I even got into human factors at all. Which at the time I didn't really know what I was doing. I really didn't know why I was applying to to a human factors grad program. It just sounded like something that might be interesting. Interesting because you could, you know, work with software and desi- help design products in a way that was more useful. That was definitely the pitch that you used to see a lot more. Um, you know, I don't know, five years ago when I was applying. Um, and it just reminded me of writing my personal statement and the reason i wanted to even get into human factors was to help make more usable kind of music production software tools so it's it's kind of relit the fire in me to kind of pursue some of that in my own extracurricular time because i've spent a little bit of time like through some of my javascript courses like building you know Beat makers with JavaScript that you can use online, and like thinking about now, like how can I incorporate, you know, some of the power that you see in in, you know, more advanced software tools that are used for music production. How can I build like better front ends for that kind of stuff and kind of show ROI with what I've learned from the different industries I've been in, the different experience I've had with doing, you know, front end design and different design projects. So it's it's just been kind of a cool week for me in terms of getting re inspired to. Love being in the profession that I'm in because sometimes I let work or you know things that are unsuccessful that I do kind of weigh down and me feeling like I really don't want to be doing what I'm doing with my life. But it's moments like these where you either kind of reminded why you even got into it or like experiencing cool things on Slack or getting online and talking to Nick to do this podcast that really remind you why you want to why you're doing what you're doing. So it's it's good to have that every once in again. So Blake. I'm gonna jump into my banter here because I
1: have been watching trash television. Um, oh my god! And I don't know how I feel about it. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so here's the thing, man. Like, have you heard of this? I guess it's a cultural phenomenon that's sweeping the nation. Um, oh, it is, is it called, duck hunt? huh? Is it Duck Hunt? No, 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 no. It is called Love Is Blind. Uh, have you heard of this show?
2: No. What? What is okay. this?
1: Okay. Let me describe the premise to you, Blake. Uh, so you have several individuals that all get together, and um, they are basically separated in this big facility. Um, oh, no. And so, yes, they're separated uh, through this facility. So- those of the same gender identified uh, are, are on the same on on similar sides, right? So all the all the girls are on one side, all the boys are on the other side. And what happens is they go into these rooms that they call pods, and they, uh, the, you know, someone from the other side comes into the pod, and they just start talking. And these are effectively dates. And the whole premise is that you're getting to know someone on the other side of this pod. And how does the, they they keep calling this an experiment, which it really isn't, because anyone who listens to the show knows that this is totally confounded by a million different things like cameras being there and the talking head. This experimental design Just, is really good. It, yeah, it is. Anyway, they keep calling it an experiment. And so so the whole premise is that they, they get into these rooms, they talk to these people, and uh, then they propose to them, literally, based on having conversations with the other person.
2: Well, that doesn't end in divorce, I promise. So look, here's the thing. Is the, the,
1: the season finale was tonight and i'm not going to spoil it for anyone
2: who, else, <laughs> who also likes to watch trash tv um wait did you have you watched like a full season enough to be watching the okay yeah so
1: look like here's the thing netflix is dropping these week uh, not even week by week they dropped it mid february and now it's the end of february and they're in the la- it's a three-week uh event is what they're calling it and so they've been dropping an episode
2: every couple nights hold um, on i have a question that yes to there's a lot of to. questions just to understand the premise of the show, so you said that there there's people put on like two opposite sides of this like pod thing, and yes. then they enter they enter the same pod. When you said this was love is blind, are these people blindfolded when they're no, talking no, no, to no, each No, 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 no,
1: no, So they are entering their own pod. They 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 can get comfortable. They can wear whatever they want in this pod. The okay. only thing that's separating them is this semi permeable uh thing in the middle that they can't. See through, but they can okay. hear through. So they're sitting uh, there. Oh,
2: okay. So they are technically blind of what each other looks yes. like, and they're just talking through. But these like, pods. yeah, they're
1: sitting there on the couches. They're just kind of chatting with each other, and they spend a lot of time in there, right? Really getting to know the other person. Wait, um, how
2: much time?
1: The, well, I mean, so they are tucked away. This is a reality TV show, Blake. So this is all <gasps> they're doing is
2: they're dating. And then, I forgot what that means. Right. So this is like something that's just being filmed all the time. They're living in yeah. a pod. Yeah, basically.
1: Wow. And then uh, you know, there's there's some awkwardness with like some people liking the other person, and then like,
2: hey, some I people don't.
1: I was going to propose to you, but I'm actually going to go with this other person, and then maybe that person having some hangups. Anyway, there's this absolutely tr- absolute train wreck of a person on there. I'm not gonna like. It is. I gotta say, man, <laughs> oh God, this is so deep in this. <laughs> this is so interesting, and I love it. And like, I was not gonna watch this and my partner put it on kind of in the background while I wasn't watching, and I was listening. And then, uh, you know, it was, it was one of those things where I slowly kind of turned around and was like, what are you watching? And, you know, <laughs> you know and it's like, okay, well, uh, we got to pump the brakes on this because I got to watch this with you.
2: <laughs> That's hilarious, man. So oh that, my was, goodness. that
1: was Wednesday, and we blew through all the episodes between Wednesday, yesterday, and today uh wow and, you guys just
2: crushed the block so now you're ready i for guess today's
1: thursday time? so it's tuesday hang on so it's tuesday wednesday today um so anyway yeah we have we've got through about half of the season finale but let me just say like some end in success and some don't uh not gonna say who not gonna say you know, but like it's a really interesting thing to me because it really got me thinking about what would an actual experiment like this look like right if you were to just carry in a bunch of people and be like Hey, here you go. Oh, and here's the other thing, by the way. It's not a true experiment because they are, it's all confounded by everybody looks like a fucking model on the show. Like, it's not even.
2: Well, of course. I mean, it's for TV and it's produced by producers, right? So, I mean, it's got to look good.
1: It's like they come out and they're like, oh my God, I was expecting them to be ugly. And they're like this, they're like a model. Anyway, it's, it's just, it's. It's total trash TV, and I feel kind of bad watching it. But man, is it! Oh, but like, you love it. There's just a train wreck of a person on the show, and it's just like it's it's oh, it's it's just so good to watch. And uh, anyway, yeah, there's this other You're thing hilarious, I don't man. care to talk about. I feel like I was passionate enough about it. Maybe I'll bring that up next week. Um, okay, well, I think <laughs> I think we've gone on long enough about fake experiments. So what do you say we get into real experiments and stuff with this next part of the show? <laughs> That's right, it's Human Factors News. This is where we break down everything related to the field of human factors. This could be anything from medical, privacy, security. Uh, We got a little bit of everything in there this week. You name it, as long as it relates to the field of human factors, it is fair game for us to talk about on the show. Blake, what do we have up first
2: this week? So nothing crazy this week. So a British woman has emerged from complicated brain surgery with her fine motor skills intact, thanks to doctors who insisted she play her beloved violin throughout the operation. Dagmar Turner went through went under the knife at King's College Hospital in London to have a dangerous tumor removed from her brain. The tumor was nestled right in the frontal lobe of her brain, close to the area that controls language and the fine movements in Turner's left hand. One wrong move by doctors, and it might have cost Turner 40 years of violin practice, robbing Oops. her of her dexterity, <laughs> needed to play the instrument. But the neurosurgeons had a plan. They mapped Turner's brain, opened up her skull for the surgery, then woke her from the, her anesthesia and asked her, hey, would you mind playing your violin while we do this? The activity allowed for them to see and avoid parts of the brain she needs while playing, which successfully cutting away bits of the tumor. Nick, this is beyond insane, and this is what I referred to at the beginning of the show. There's a there video. There's a video of this, but it's kind of incredible, man, the fact that, one, you can map the brain well enough to understand where these kind of areas are, which I know we know a little bit about that, but like in practice during surgery is completely different than theoretical knowledge. But then again, you're while somebody's doing a fine motor skill like playing violin, you can actually see that activation of the brain enough to make good decisions while cutting out a tumor. I mean, this 2020 is just too crazy for me already. But now we've got a woman playing violin with her skull cracked open, and they're taking stuff out. This is just awesome. Yeah,
1: this is uh, this is crazy, and I don't know enough about surgery. I don't know enough about neurosurgery. I don't know enough about this procedure. Um, I just thought this was a cool story and you know it's it's interesting to see that the technology has allowed us to get to this point where we can operate on somebody while they are performing a task and like you said be able to map that brain activity uh, or at least see it in some capacity to be, understand what pieces of it are important for uh, some of these motor functions and, and cognitive processes that are involved with something um like playing a violin, you know. I'm, I'm not sure. I don't know if she's like a, um, you know, if she's a, a expert player for um, a, a, an orchestra or something. But I, you know, I would imagine even as a hobby. Like, I wouldn't want to lose the, the ability to like podcast. Right? <laughs> like, it's like open up a, open up your skull and then podcast with Blake. You know. <laughs>
2: Oh my goodness! That would crazy. be just insanity itself. But it's it's kind of interesting in that I wonder if there's kind of an implemented technology solution that these doctors will be using during the surgery because I I have a hard time because again I'm not a surgeon never have really been in the operating room but I would assume that you know just visibly watching the brain and hoping you see like you know twitching in the brain is probably not going to be enough to tell you that okay I should just avoid cutting this area and it looks like kind of watching through the video right now. The doctors are actually kind of going in between, looking up at a screen, looking down at the brain, looking up at a screen. So I'm assuming maybe there's some like neuronal mapping going on where they're seeing some electrical pulses on this digital display, which is, again, incredible because we've got so many people in the operating room. And now we've got this lady playing violin. I mean, can you imagine the amount of distraction that must be for a surgeon? Now, I'm sure they're used to it, but, like, managing a screen, managing yeah. a patient's life, and then you, you have, like, five other people around you.
1: They're totally used to a violin playing in the in the surgery room,
2: uh, in the OR. Uh, so yeah, I do Dr. Wanna... Strange is an indication, yeah. <laughs> I do want
1: to make a quick clarification. So she is a um, management consultant who plays in the Isle of Wight Symphony Orchestra, Um, so they were able to remove 90% of this tumor, uh, and still maintain full, um, dexterity, mobility of her left hand, uh, so that way she can still play, which is just,
2: it's crazy, man. So awesome. I love it, dude. I I really do. Like, the fact that, one, that they... I I mean if she's just a management consultant that means that I, I'm assuming they had like great point of care with her right because you would have had to know you would have had to talk to her to even know right. that hey I play violin blah 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 and then to think about like okay how can we really you know save this fact because of where this tumor is is there anything we can do as surgeons to try and like keep that functionality for her because it's something she's really passionate about and then coming up with this solution is just, it's just incredible to me.
1: Yeah. I I'm okay with keeping this one a little short because I have a feeling we're going to take some
2: deep dives coming up, but why don't we go ahead and get into the next story? All right, let's do it. So, New Curtin University research has found a lack of understanding about the security of their personal data is a major barrier to many Australians using mobile health apps, which could have serious patient ramifications as healthcare systems undergo a digital transformation. So, the research published in Plus One found that the two greatest deterrents for people to use mobile health administration apps were a lack of knowledge regarding the electronic storage and security of their personal information and the time it took to register on the app. The study under, underlined the need for an improved public understanding of data security and increased transparency by app managers about how they manage, store, and use a person's data. Yikes, there's there's a lot to unpack here. If this was the one you thought we might deep dive on, I can see why. It is not, it, but the next one is, but this one we can deep dive on, sure. Gotcha. <laughs> I don't know. This just has so many different problems in it, right? Like we, We've we got a little bit of usability, a little bit of misunderstanding about how cybersecurity works and how, how easy or uneasy it is to communicate that. I mean, yeah. I don't know. What, do you, what are you thinking, Nick? You pulled this guy. Uh, well,
1: yeah, so I think this is this is interesting for a couple different reasons, right? Like you said, cybersecurity, information, um, and education, uh, as well as the whole trust in not only automation, but, uh, digital systems. Uh, and so thinking about all those things together, right? There's, this is, this is based in Australia, but I think this is probably worldwide. You know, I, I, I think that's a, a pretty good generalization is that there's probably a lot of, uh, folks that, don't necessarily i'm trying to be careful with my words here there's probably a lot of folks that don't necessarily trust technology or uh machines because of things like the data breaches that happen almost on a daily basis
2: now we are even thinking about you know aging populations that maybe don't use their smartphone as much and may not some don't even have them i mean now if you're being kind of Push towards even if you have a smartphone and figure out how to log into a clunky system and you know let your data be sucked up by something you don't necessarily understand. I mean, yeah, across I'd say across the world, it is a, a problem in consideration because we've had this problem with Facebook over the past couple of years of different data breaches. Now you're dealing with different types of people using phones and just the general kind of unawareness of what's going on in the cybersecurity space across you know any kind of um, data infrastructure that exists out there. I mean, that's a lot to kind of digest as a single person who's just trying to, you know, go to the doctor.
1: Yeah. And so America's pretty far behind in terms of first world countries in terms of their, uh, their healthcare. But I will say, you know, at least with the group that I'm with, they have basically pushed on the digital revolution onto folks. Um, just basically saying, Hey, look, you have to either interface with the app or call somebody. Uh, And that's all technology, right? Like there's situations where I just want to schedule an appointment, make a call. Uh, You know, like the the scheduling office doesn't exist physically on the campus anymore. It's a phone call. Um, And so if people are, you know, even uncomfortable with divulging information over a telephone wire, you know, that is this technology that's been around for a while, but I can still see where some people would have a hang up with that. Now, the same medical group also does have a lot of information stored digitally on their servers, and you can access it on your phone. And of course, you and I know this is all encrypted, but a lot of people don't know that, right? They don't know that there are HIPAA laws and there are different uh, protections in place, at least here in the states, that prevent apps and uh, servers and technology uh, from having that that have personal identification information um, or, or you know, personal health records, they can't divulge that to other people. There's there's a bunch of laws about that. But that doesn't mean that the cybersecurity aspect of it is all going to be perfect, right? You could have a data breach with this stuff. And what does that mean for you? You know, if if a company or a malicious individual knows that you are suffering from some disease, they might try to take out life insurance on you or something you know like there's there's a bunch of different things that you can kind of start to piece together um, but yeah I don't know this has a lot of implications and the bottom line is we need to help people understand what it is that is going on here uh, and how why they can trust the system
2: yeah I feel like a lot of this comes down to how you're designing the information that you're presenting because I feel like the vast majority of these kind of applications may be kind of showing this information or they do provide it but it could be in something like these terms and services agreements where you have to like you have to basically have a lawyer sitting next to you to explain what every other sentence means to you where in the case of like something like the Alexa skills app right where you have you know When we read the article about it, it was very explicit about the fact that it's a HIPAA-compliant application built on this voice system. So it's one of those things that people wouldn't know that right off of hand that there is implications and there is guidelines for how data is used if it's related to your health and it's related to a person that HIPAA controls. And so likely, any of these kind of Applications that are at least in the United States, and I'm sure there are kind of similar organizations across the world. You're gonna have some some sort of like protection in terms of your data is not gonna be sold to other companies, not gonna end up in Facebook's hands or something like that. But you bring up probably the the more important point, and I think the in the data savvy world or in the tech savvy world, people are more worried about is like yeah, it's it's much much easier and much more. You know, kind of a, a seamless experience if I have all of my health data digitized. But what happens in the event of these kind of data breaches? Um, but I think you've brought this point up before, and I've started to lean more towards it. It's like there's so much of my data exposed out in the world anyway. I mean, I'm, I'm already there's so much you can find out from about me just doing a Google search that you know finding out my blood type or something like that it's not something i want out there but i mean it's i would almost rather have the access to this high-powered data infrastructure of being able to access all my data all my records related to my health transport them to my doctor you know include kind of this fitbit integration style of data into my health apps and all that kind of stuff so it's it's just what side of the fence do you want to fall on
1: yeah, I, you did mention the Google search on Blake Arnstorf, uh, and I will mention that uh, that is a great Google search. There's
2: a great source of hilarity in that. Um,
1: yeah, there's there's a great picture in there. I
2: think from your grad school days. Oh yeah, that would be at Cal <laughs> State Long Beach.
1: <laughs> it is the number two uh, picture. It's, it's oh, the, it's so the good. Second picture on there. Anyway,
2: is that me with like just the longest hair ever? <laughs>
1: yeah, yeah, it's a great picture.
2: Anyway, yeah, no, I I I, I agree. I
1: think. For people like you and I who grew up with data being collected about ourselves, data being out on the internet, you know, it's it's a weird thing, but it's at the same time it's kind of a fact of life now. And I feel like we are probably comfortable with something like that. However, I feel that um, you know there still needs to be an effort to kind of convince those um, the the aging population, if you will, um, that it's okay and. You know the, I don't know. It kind of depends on what the app does, right? Because we're just talking about mobile health apps in general, um, you know. And and this can be the case for a lot of apps. But I know, of like, you know, there's that pervasiveness of like, hey, give me your email, give me your date of birth, give me your social security number. You know, I mean, that's that's a U.S. thing, but like, still, I, I can imagine there's some information that you'd be weary about putting into
2: a device, right? Especially one that like, I don't know. So, yeah, I mean, I, I still feel the same way. I get weary of the fact where you have to throw around something like in the States that says identifying and as kind of troubling as a social security number. It's not something I just want to give out and be like throwing around. But like every, almost anything that is important, like from your phone bill to your health apps, they'll, they'll require it. So it's like, what do you, how do you avoid that? Or what do you do with it? You don't, it's tough. You don't do with it all right uh well i think uh we're going to take a quick break
1: and we will be back to break down the rest of the news stories right human factors cast
0: strives to bring you the best in human factors chatter every week we pack news interviews reviews and overall fun conversations into each and every product that we put our seal of approval on but we can't do it without you you see the human factors cast network is 100 percent listener supported All the funds that go into running this show come from the listeners. That's why we're giving back to our supporters on Patreon, now more than ever. Pledges start at just $1 per month and include rewards like 24-7 access to our exclusive Human Factors Cast Slack channel, personalized professional reviews, and Human Factors Cast Infinite, a Patreon-only podcast where the topic is Human Factors, etc. We're always updating our rewards, so stop by Patreon.com slash cast to see what support level may be right for you. Thank you all, and remember, it depends.
1: Okay, and we're back. Thank you to all of our friends over at Curtin University, Global News, and IEEE Spectrum for all of our news stories this week. If you want to follow along, you can follow us all over social media or join us on our Slack. Please join us on our Slack. We're always trying to make that better. For the community, <laughs> uh, and we do post the links to the original articles there, and you can share whatever you want to share with us there too. That's a great place if you see something interesting, share it there, uh, and we'll pick it up and run with it. Um, okay, Blake, we have two more news stories. This next one is the one that I was thinking we would deep dive.
2: Alright, here we go. So in artificial intelligence circles, there's a lot of talk about adversarial attacks, especially ones that attempt to deceive an AI into believing, or to be more accurate, like accurate classifying something incorrectly. Self-driving cars being fooled into thinking stop signs are speed, speed limit signs, pandas being identified as gibbons, or even having your favorite voice assistant be fooled by an inaudible acoustic command... These are all examples that populate the narrative around AI deception. So this particular article that we've selected dives into the nuances of understanding the breadth of what AI deception looks like and what happens when it's not a human's intent behind a deceptive AI, but instead an AI agent's own learned behavior. While these may seem somewhat far-fetched concepts as AI st- is still relatively narrow in its scope and can be rather stupid in some ways if we, are going to, if we are going to get ahead of the curve regarding AI deception we need to have a robust understanding of all the ways AI could be deceiving people so we, we require some conceptual framework or spectrum of the kinds of deception an AI agent may learn on its own before we can even start provo- proposing technological defenses against it so there is a lot going on here, Nick. So AI deception is something that I'm not even totally familiar with, but it sounds like we've actually talked a lot of, about a lot of articles that kind of deal with it, mainly that in the inaudible acoustic commands to your favorite voice assistants.
1: Yeah, so I wanted to do something a little bit different this week. So this article isn't necessarily like news or something. This is just one person's take on AI deception. And I thought it would be a good kind of talking point for us to just kind of get deep on um you know i feel like we kind of do this from time to time but this almost gives us a platform to do so um so this particular article was posted on uh the ieee spectrum forum and um you know they they go into what is deception uh, how do we define deception and kind of like preparing ourselves for this deception so um we can just kind of take pieces bits and pieces of this article but i from your perspective blake like i want to hear what ai deception is to you that the like blurb up at the top kind of defined it a little bit but um you know what are what do we think an ai deception
2: is so I really like how they bring in this kind of self-driving cars aspect of things because I feel like that's a really good place for where deception could be used is that trying to trick an AI system into believing a certain thing. Believing is kind of the wrong word, but computing that what, something is recognizing... Yeah, associating something it's seeing in the world as not exactly what a human would have intended it to be. I feel like that's probably the one of the better ways we can put deception. Um, the, the one that... I'm very unfamiliar with but super curious about because it relates to kind of situation awareness agent theories is this not the the kind of deception that's not really based off of some human's intent of trying to like make this AI deceptive but when the agent itself has its own learned behaviors that end up being like deceiving the original AI's intent that is kind of I think where people get a little bit off the rails and are worried about kind of like generalized and in- intelligence related to AI. So I think there's some combination between, of course, you trying to fool the existing AI system into believing something that it may not be supposed to be identifying as being true. So like the stop sign um, versus you know speed sign problem. But then also if as like time goes on and AI advances more, maybe creating its own learned behaviors that are not necessarily in line with its intended functionality um, that we had that it was originally meant for, which we've kind of gone over that being a big talking point with a lot of these ethics discussions that we've seen around the world.
1: Yeah. To me. Okay. So my opinion might be kind of colored by actually reading this article, you know, but before this article, I think my idea of what AI deception would have been is something where a computer, a system, a robot, uh, makes a decision that, um, the human is not fully informed about uh so from from my perspective i almost thought of this as like well what if we took a um what what if you know the 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 system like here's here's an example right an automated vehicle what if on the dashboard it said 65 miles per hour but in reality it was going about 75 um, and it was deceiving the person in the cab uh, to kind of give them a sense of security. They're going the speed limit. They're not going to get pulled over. However, due to the flow of traffic, due to the safety conditions on the road, going 75 miles per hour might actually be a safer choice. Um, so that's the kind of situation that I was thinking of. Like, where can it be implemented where can deception be implemented by ai to deceive the human but i'm not necessarily thinking about for malicious purposes i'm thinking about for um the benefit of the human right and that in in the case that i just outlined the human would feel safer if they saw 65 miles per hour you know vice it, they might actually be safe. I, I don't know it's it's just something that i thought about um so i don't know we can dig into that a little bit if we want, but uh, I I do want to get into what (laughs) some of these actual definitions are of deception, and basically it's false communication to the benefit of the communicator, so uh, that kind of fits the description of what I was saying, right, it would benefit the car, it also benefits, it doesn't, it's not solely benefiting the vehicle, Right. For fuel efficiency, for safety, for a variety of different reasons. It's also benefiting the driver or, or the, the passenger, I guess. Um, so I don't know. Like, What do you think of that definition?
2: I think I like the kind of follow up definition they include in that the communication is used to inform is providing information with the intent to kind of manipulate the other. Because that, that fits in line a little bit with what you're talking about, right? So it's, it's not just the fact that it's benefiting the car by, you know, it, it's making better decisions based on not knowing how to correctly communicate with the human, that it's assessed the situation, this choice is right, but it's also kind of manipulating what the human is thinking in order to, you know, achieve a better outcome. So in this case, going 75 when it's saying 65, but there's a reason behind it that the human can't quickly understand, but the AI system is computed as being a good choice to make um i guess deception is just an odd word to me when it's in that case right because that's like almost a positive deception is how i would frame it yeah it's like there there's there's something being done basically in benefit of human without being able to quickly communicate it because we're horrible you know computators and trying to communicate that information is gonna be really difficult whereas like typical deception, I think, of more of that second definition where you're trying to manipulate somebody else by feeding them other types of information, whatever that kind of ends up looking like. Um, I think he's a really good... I really like the way this article is kind of structured by defining, you know, concepts in terms of definitions first because I'm assuming kind of how this goes is it defines kind of the concepts we need to be looking out for and then helps. that's how it kind of helps inform the framework, if you will, of how we can understand AI deception before it talks about potential technological defense systems. Um, but I mean, this kind of fits the bill. It also look, it, it can be taken in either, either a positive or negative light. Um, and I think that's kind of really important here because I'm assuming that AI in some ways is probably going to be trying to make decisions on your behalf and protect you from yourself in some ways. It's at it, some point anyway. Um, yeah. I so, Can I jump
1: in here, Blake? I want to talk about Human subjects research.
2: A lot of us in the field of human factors
1: are trained in psychology. Uh, some of us come from design. Some of us come from engineering. A lot of us are trained from psychology, from the psychology perspective. And we, in human subjects research, we are taught that um, you know what is ethical when it comes to deception. Well, it has to the risk has to or the reward has to outweigh the risk. Right? The the nugget of knowledge that is going to be gained by doing this research on this population uh, must outweigh the risk associated with introducing that deception in uh, uh, an environment where, you know, research is being done. And so if you think about that approach to deception in AI, I think that might be one good way. Um, I don't necessarily think deception in AI is a bad thing. Right. If it does benefit the human operator, I say operator in air quotes because with automation, there is no operator. Right. Uh, But uh, or or they could be interacting at different points and the various levels of operator of automation. But thinking about this risk versus reward thing. Right. The reward of um, informing the human of the actuality of some situation going on. Must outweigh the risk of letting them know that thing, right? So, so there's like another calculation that needs to happen on the AI's part of like, what are the possible outcomes if the human A knows this information or B does not know this information, um, and how will that affect things further down the road, right? Like, if there is in fact, like, let's say you are in a nuclear power plant, power plant, or something. Automation d- Does it, you know, send um, send an alarm at the first sign of something bad going on? No, it waits because, you know, this is all programmed, but it's not hard to think that once a, a digital agent is um, kind of thinking for itself, if you will, making these decisions all on its own, um, that it wouldn't calculate these types of risk-reward scenarios in its... Uh, in its information dissemination does that make sense
2: it does especially with some of these like later examples the article provides because now i'm starting to see see the need for like a calibration almost and yeah that, like how much you benefit a human um cause I, I actually want to read one of those last examples that it provides go for it because uh, it's kind of it's kind of funny in that it's real right so just think of this in the lens of you you'd have to calibrate how much you're supposed to help a human versus not um so in in this case so in more pedestrian examples perhaps a rather poorly specified or corrupted ai tax assistant would omit various types of income on a tax return to minimize the likelihood of owing money to the relevant authorities so that's maximally benefiting a human so not having to if depending on where you put the anchor point so in terms of maximizing benefit your tax return is lower you're not spending as much money ai has done good for you but that's like a corrupt mental model of an ai right um so that's kind of related to what we what you were talking about here of like you've now got (laughs) these different kinds of ai territories where you have to think about how they're benefiting humans and in this case it could be deceiving other humans could be deceiving the human that it's working for or working with um but in in the case of the risk reward for doing so it depending on how it's calibrated of course it could be really benefiting humans so it makes different decisions um that that has to be such like a complex decision tree to think about especially when the because this is a very specific case, but in order to get here, I mean, you've got to have AI almost working at so many different levels. Uh, but I don't know I, where where do you really? Because s- I'm wondering how we even defend ourselves against this kind of stuff. Because it, it talks a little bit about like how you defend, like put technological defenses together um, for AI deception, so that you it can be caught basically. Because if you remember from I think either the UK or the from the U S side and like the ethical committees, one of the two mentions that you basically have to be able to go back, understand where an quote unquote error is made in an AI system. So it almost seems like that defense mechanism is more so being able to retrace how a decision was made um, versus like anything more like from like a tactical thing of like fighting AI, if you will. Yeah. Well, I think
1: the first step um, and the article actually mentions this is, is to know that basically this is already happening. Um, deception is already happening in the systems we already have, uh, and it's likely to continue. Right? Um, uh, so, I think knowing is half the battle. Right? I wish I had a GI Joe soundboard. Um, there you go. But, <laughs> but you know, it's 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 difficult. We always talk about the education piece of things, right, and training and stuff, and it's, it's difficult to get across um, a concept where. You know, something like this is already happening and it's like, well, it's for your benefit and most people hear the word deception and if they don't have human subjects researcher, you know, they, they're not familiar with how it's used in other contexts. They might think that deception is inherently a bad thing. Um, and so, you know, start there and then think about how to basically create solutions that will put these checks and balances on automated systems. Um, at least that's kind of what I'm thinking, right? It, acknowledge the problem figure out how to fix the problem how to put checks and balances um you know and 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 into a system that so that way if deception happens it is that choice it is that split choice of do the rewards outweigh the risk and then how do we build in something else that also informs the user that hey you were deceived and it was for your benefit
2: and that's the tricky part i think yeah, I mean you I mean you probably I would err on the side you just don't do it as long as the benefit is actually there. Mm. Cuz the the more that you do that, the more it's like well, is it tricking me right
1: now? Trust and automation goes. Yeah, way down.
2: you you start like really not knowing what's going on, but I think like the 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 checks and balances concept is the best way to start cuz you you ultimately want to be able to trace back whatever decisions are being made to some something that was put there in the first place. Now it gets a little more complicated as we kind of like talk about the air quotes again, like cognitive capacities that grow in AI agent systems. Um, Cause that, then that gets a little bit out of hand. Like how do you even trace back basically thoughts that are being had? Um, but for now putting the framework together of that, it's already happening. Understanding that you have to be able to, Know how to calibrate the risk or reward very much dependent on the situation you're in is probably going to be the biggest factor in a lot of this stuff. Because it's like if it's the the two examples that I see in here are like military applications and then that tax example, where it's like they have vastly different you know impacts to different humans, mm-hmm. um, and potentially humans on not just one side but on both one that they're serving and one that they're not. So it's it's got this very you know, dichotomous feel to it. So it's, I don't know, man. It's its interesting to think about. Um, and I i really feel like I like where it's going only because the more this kind of, is co- these kind of, I guess, articles are coming out, where it is like citing papers and talking a little bit more about, you know, kind of high-level theory related to AI, the more that it's kind of out there in the public, the more people are thinking about it. And the less that it's going to be more very like unknown to a lot of people because the fact that it's going on is probably it's not something that I really think about in my day to day and it's probably not something a lot of people even in the technology field think about all the time so just kind of understanding that the framework for how you deal with these kind of problems is similar to stuff that you deal with now you have to understand the problem and then try and reverse engineer how you solve it Uh, so it's it's a cool problem to face for sure I mean do you I don't know I'm not even sure if I'll Ever work with AI systems, um, but the way this is kind of phrased, it may you might be already in, and not just yeah. Now. It could be like way more integrated into my daily workflow, and I'm not even sure that I'm using it.
1: Yeah, I I feel like that's the case for a lot of people. They might not know that they're working on automated systems. They might just the automation level might just be so low that you know it requires a human input for every step along the way, and there's not really there's not really opportunities for deception. And I think that needs to be Um, you know, I, I feel like there are more opportunities, the more automated a system is, and the more automated a system is, the more aware that you probably be about that system and the decisions that it's making for the human operator. Um, so that's, yeah, that's something to think about for sure. Um, I, do you have any other closing thoughts on this one, Blake? I, I liked this deep dive. I think, um, these types of prompts these questions are interesting especially for folks like you and i who are not super familiar with the domain of you know artificial intelligence um to kind of jump in from like a layman's perspective to kind of see what where 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 head our heads are at you know during this whole thing
2: i really love that maybe this is the spin the article's putting on it but i think it is true so in human factors like you're really taught that you have to work in a cross functional team to come up with a solution. It's not just about go do a user test or like go perform I- any kind of method. And because you're the human factors person, you'll fix it. And that's the way this kind of article is really presenting AI. It's like it's such an interdisciplinary problem. That we'll have to deal with at some point, like from a legislative point of view, from a scientific point of view, from technologists to even your everyday human that may have to deal with it in your car, in your phone, whatever it may be. So I I like this kind of avenue for me as a layman to be able to really immerse myself and realize how kind of dumb to AI I am, and kind of influence me to go look more into it, but also just. You know, Think about what the problems are that could be coming, and from a human factors perspective or even a design perspective, what can be done to kind of help solve some of those issues.
1: Yeah, this is a great article from uh, the IEEE Spectrum, so go check it out. Uh, and you know what? I'm, I'm going to give a call to action for our listeners. Did you enjoy this? Did you like this kind of deep dive that we did? We're actually going to skip the last story because we spent so much time on this. And also uh you know a second call to action what are your thoughts on this whole ai thing just join us on slack engage with us on social media let us know what you think um i'm genuinely curious right because like we we didn't cover everything i know we didn't cover everything um but i am curious what other people are thinking about deception and ai is it a good thing is it a bad thing how can we solve it you know uh, what is it even that though all these things are things that i'm interested in so uh Let us know your thoughts. Please, please write in. We're super interested in that. Maybe we'll read some on next week's show if we get enough. Absolutely. All right, so we are going to go ahead and skip this next story. Uh, I will summarize for you the Apple Watch can't detect things, can't detect irregular heartbeats over 120 beats per minute. There you go. That's it. Um, (laughs) Take precautions. (laughs) Take precautions. We are going to go ahead and get into this next part of the show. It
0: came from... It came from...
1: That's right. It came from Reddit. This is the part of the show where we search all over the community to bring you topics the community is talking about. Uh, you know what? I need to stop saying "community community.": We search community, o- community. We search all over the Internet. We search all over, everywhere. We search everywhere. For topics that you guys are talking about this could I'll be anything it. from uh the ux subreddit we took the hfes member form. sometimes we get emails sometimes it's twitter it's everywhere um but we have a couple this week you know what blake i'm gonna pass it to you i want you to let me know which one that you're thinking um that i think we have time for maybe two i have three in here so i'm 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 gonna go ahead and say one of them for sure should be three but i'm gonna give you choice of one or two got you let's go with number one okay all right so the first one here is from the user experience subreddit this is from the user uh let's see here this is from the user i don't know how to use reddit anymore artsy chick 83 all right <laughs> this is how and where do you process and store data from your research and feedback um they go on to write, we're ramping up our user research activities and one UX person has all has used Airtable for past projects. Another UXer on my team has used a combination of documenting in confluence and confluence appen- and affinity mapping in Miro. I'm curious of other methods of software you have to store, analyze, reference data over time. Any methods you've discovered to help shorten the process or little ways to make it easier, less time consuming. Blake, I'm going to pass this one over to you. What do you think? I love this I'm going to take
2: the really simplistic method here it probably really depends on what kind of products you're looking to get out from research and feedback. Like if you're looking to make create documents or whatever, I mean, that's going to be one thing. So using something specific, like for affinity mapping and Miro or using, you know, Dryo or something like that to put together task flows. That's probably a really great place in terms of storing data. Like if it's based off of interview questions or, you know, qualitative assessments on prototypes, any of that kind of stuff, I am using an Excel sheet and Excel sheet tabs, Because one, it allows me to kind of like run quick basic analytics. I mean, Google Sheets has got even some kind of higher statistical functions you can use nowadays. So it makes it really, really simple. So I don't really get it too crazy. I mean, Airtable is great for this kind of stuff because, I mean, it's it's made for project management. You can deal with, you know, keeping some of your user data in there. If you have access to Confluence and your UX team is really, really, you know, heavy on putting documentation up there, that's great. But I mean, it can be as simple as Word documentation or just spreadsheet a spreadsheet that covers the data from each, you know, event that you have or for each product or feature you're looking at. Um, I mean, I don't, I don't like to get too complicated with how I store that stuff because uh, I want it easily accessible and then also be able to create products based off of it. Uh, so it's really... That's kind of it for me. What do you think, Nick? Where do you like to keep all of your user data?
1: Um, I like to keep... So, okay. There's a couple... This is a heavy question, I think. I don't know if we can answer it in just three minutes or whatever. But here's the thing. Uh, There's several different types of data, and there are several different methods for storing that data, right? If you have uh, survey responses, you always store the raw data from a physical survey physically you store that survey so that way you can go back and reference it if there's a question in the excel sheet that you then transfer that data to you can always go back and reference it um in terms of other things i think uh there's sort of that roll up of of uh the data right your job as a user experience researcher as a human factors professional is to roll up that data into something easily digestible for the rest of your team to understand and Whatever that format is, that is how you store it. Whether it's a a brief, whether it is a PDF document that outlines a whole architecture diagram, you know, (laughs) if that's the easiest way to understand it, um, that's how you store it. And, um, you know, there's a whole bunch of resources out there about file structure and best practices for maintaining files across large teams, uh, and especially tools like Atlassian, Confluence, Jira. Those are all great tools for that. Um, those are the ones that I'm familiar with. Those are the ones that I would recommend. Um, just because for, for a large distributed team, uh, it's, it's easy to get to and, um, you know, easy for other people to discover information. Now the software itself is not usable, but that's another story.
2: <laughs> yeah. And also too, if you're, if you're like a distributor remote team, you're doing user testing, Likely, you're using third-party software, and a lot of that stuff already has great places for that. I know UserZoom and some some card sorting services from UserTesting.com. Like, they already have a lot of like a, one ability to store that information, and you can reach it with login. So it it's safe, protected, anonymized, all that kind of good stuff. And then you can also download it into any kind of format you need it in, like be it SV or whatever, whatever you use in Excel as CVS, CSV, 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 or you can even kick out stuff. You know, it's more yeah, XLS (laughs) (laughs) or you can kick out stuff that you can use like for quick diagrams and things like that. So a lot of like the online resources have some awesome features for storing this information for you. If you are a remote or distributed team,
1: you know what we are approaching the hour, but I do want to make sure we have time (laughs) for this last one here. This one here is, uh, Talking about dealing with resistance to your design recommendations and user experience data. This one uh, also from the user experience subreddit. This one's by Big Old Box of Wires. Um, (laughs)
2: That's the best name.
1: And it almost feels like they're writing into the show. Hey, guys. I'm currently a user testing an app for a small startup company. I've recently computed my user interviews and user testing and I'm in the middle of processing my data. However, as I began talking, talking to discuss my findings with the team, I am noticing a bit of reluctance in making my many significant changes based on the data. I've talked at length with some of the team and the response seems to be their own justification that the design has to be this way or it undermines their core philosophy for the business. The business in question is an app for wine connoisseurs and the specialist nature of the app means that most participants were only partial fits to the user demographics, being wine enthusiasts but not exactly wine culture connoisseurs. This seems to be an internal justification for the team to dismiss data that they don't personally agree with. My UX de- design team, Expe- anyway, whatever. I'm, I'm gonna, I'm gonna skip to the end here. Um, thanks, guys. <laughs> <How> do- <laughs> How do you deal? Thank you,
2: Nick and Blake, for reading this on the show.
1: How do you deal uh, with resistance to your design recommendations and user experience data? Blake, I have a great answer for this, but I'm gonna let you go first.
2: Oh no, no, no. If you have ah, a great answer, okay. kick it out there. Cause I'm I'm so excited for this one. I think there's so oh, many things you can do.
1: This one's fun. My favorite thing is to okay. So you do the test. You show everybody that hey, here's what happened. Here's what happened. This is what happened. This is what's going to happen. Uh, yeah, we're not going to take that. Okay. See what happens. That's what happens. Yeah.
2: Hey, yeah, it's, rem- it's really- do you
1: do you remember this thing? Back like a couple months ago when I did this thing and you didn't listen? Um, I'm going to strate- be gentle. You have to be gentle. Strategically bring it back up and be like, hey, you know, this is actually something that we found in the user testing. And uh, we actually do have solutions for this already. So even though it's not doing great. We have solutions. Check this out. Uh, so that's that's my answer to it. If they resist, let them struggle. Let them flail. Like, let it, you know, and it's a little different depending on your relationship. If you are built in to a company as a user experience person or a human factors person, you have to show your value. You have to be, um, you know, it, you have to advocate for yourself because no one knows how important your job is except for you. And that is true in a lot of cases. If you're a contractor, that's true. If you are, um, you know, anything like that, it is absolutely true. You just need to basically show your value, make sure everything is uh, understood, right? And the more you can show instances of, hey, we tried this, it didn't work for you. And now it's, it, it, we have solutions, you could try those, See if that works. Anyway, that's my, that's my two cents.
2: Yeah, so I mean, this is this is small startup land, man. Like, you don't, I don't, we don't have the specifics, and I always hate that we don't because I have so many more questions about how I would tier this and going forward. So I'm just gonna throw a bunch of things out there, and if nothing sticks, awesome. But so it's a small startup company. Maybe you're an in of one in terms of the design team or the UX designer in the company. That's just gonna happen. You're gonna have to kind of do what Nick said. If you can't come up with like viable solutions to really push your, your stuff forward, keep it in your back pocket, let think, let product go to ship, advocate that you're getting, you know, some good, you know, qualitative metrics in there, but definitely some quantitative data too, that's built into the application so that you really know like, Hey, can I find ways in my head now to bolster what I have already found in the user data that these guys are ignoring in terms of making sure that we're like running a good user research process, even when something's deployed. But the big thing here is, is often you'll be met with kind of, especially in the startup world where you have super passionate people that have put blood, sweat, tears, and all the money in the world into a product because they believe in the, they believe in what they're creating. So you have to figure out like, what, how do I communicate to these people? There's a couple things that are, that could help you here. You mentioned that you're talking about significant changes. Can you scale them back to make them feel less significant over time? so that it makes it look like you're not making a wholesale change to the entire, you know, application or whatever. That's one way to again strategically get what you've learned into an application. The other thing is, did you identify did you as a company, not as you as the UX designer solely, identify the correct user base? Like are they really targeting these what is it? What does it call it? Specific wine culture people or are they just targeting wine connoisseurs in general? <laughs> Um, so it just depends. Do you need to actually get more people to come and use the application to get a better representative sample? Do you just have the wrong people? Maybe you maybe that's the case. It still is not good that your company is, you know, re is kind of like pressing you down on the fact that even with the research that you did, it's just not it's not good enough to change the product. So the the biggest thing you've got to really think about is what can you do from here on out? Could it either be do more user testing, try and bolster the data, keep the stuff in your back pocket for when you launch and then come back to it. It's probably a combination of both. And then it's finding like an advocate within the company that at least kind of, you can convince to see eye to eye with you. That's going to be three of the biggest things you can really walk away with and do. And it's a startup. I mean, things are crazy. It's hard. And trying to like, pivot if you don't pivot ruthlessly from the start you're gonna have a hard time so it it may not be that you can make the company you know change its culture do what's best for you all right well that's gonna be it for
1: today everyone let us know what you guys think of the stories this week you can join the discussion on our slack or follow us on any of our social media channels at a tractors podcast please do let us know if you enjoyed this kind of deep dive that we did with the deception in ai and what your thoughts on that is uh, you can email us at show at HumanFactorsCast.com. If you like, want to hear, want to support the show, you can leave us a review on your podcast medium of choice or consider supporting us on Patreon and, and uh, join the Human Factors Minute fun. We are so excited for that um, and hope you are too. So uh, please, please do check out that. And uh, of course, you can always reach us at our home on the web, HumanFactorsCast.com. I want to thank Mr. Blake Arnstor for being on the show today. Where can our listeners go and find you if they want to talk about DigiPeePee?
2: <laughs> you guys can always find me at Don't Panic UX across social media. <laughs> Thank you for listening to you, Factors Cast. You guys are amazing.
1: Oh my god. Okay, so the inside joke with that? <laughs>
2: <laughs> if you made it to the end of the show. <laughs>
1: yeah, congratulations. Anyway, uh, as for me, I've been your host, Nick, Nick Rome. You can find me across social media at Nick underscore Rome. Thanks again for tuning in to him, Factors Cast. Until next time, it's a bit. My wife and kid are in the other room saying, did you pee-pee? And he's laughing really loudly. And it was very hard for me to keep my composure during the last couple seconds of the show.
0: All right.
3: Spacecraft, railway locomotives, nuclear submarines, healthcare, jet aircraft. These are all examples of highly technical systems and organizations and all have one particular thing in common. They all involve humans. Humans who want to do amazing things and are using technology to achieve them. They all have something else in common. They have amazing people ensuring that the users who are involved can do what they need to do, are safe when they do so, and have the optimum user experience.